uh, good and gracious God, we come before your presence, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word this day. Amen. We are continuing our journey into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, For the past three months, we've been uh, going chapter by chapter and looking at some of the highlights uh, in this Gospel. And I hope that you are learning a little uh, about Jesus uh, as we journey through this Gospel. It is my hope that you're able to see Jesus in a new light, his teaching, his actions as well. Last week, we looked at um, Jesus' interaction uh, with the people of Jerusalem, and more, um, more importantly, how he talked to the Pharisees. We realize sometimes that Jesus, we have boxed Jesus into a little giant uh, with a smile on his face, but sometimes Jesus has some harsh words for us to consider. And last week, we looked at the call to repentance, that we, Jesus calls us to repent and to grow in our faith. When we repent and we walk towards the cross, That was our call, and uh, that is what we were called to do, is to walk towards the cross. And we realized as Jesus turned and was walking towards the cross, that there are a lot of people and a lot of opposition that comes our way. And one of the things that carried Jesus right to the cross was his commitment to his mission statement, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach good news to the poor, and to care for those on the margins, and to declare that the salvation of our God is here. And that's what carried Jesus to the cross. So that that was um, last week's uh, conversation. And today, we're looking at two um, familiar parables, uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, There are three parables, and there are the parables of the lost. And here, uh, the, the rhythm of these parables is rather simple, if you will. Uh, And the way the rhythm of this parable goes is something is lost, something is found, and then there is celebration. That's pretty much how the parables break down in all three instances. Something is lost, something is found, and then there are celebrations. Sometimes uh, we have come to this parable and we've read it as an allegory. or we've, we've heard sermons as allegory. Allegory here uh, in this context means that we look for this story with a hidden meaning inside it. We've kind of viewed these stories um, as a hidden meaning. There's something more than what the story says to us. That's how we've sometimes approached uh, the Bible, especially the parables of Jesus. For example, uh, you might have heard uh, this uh, allegory of preaching about the Good Samaritan. A few weeks ago, we read that passage. You all remember? Please say yes. All right. Thank you. That gives me a smile on my face. Thank you. All right. So we we heard the story of the Good Samaritan, but sometimes they were allegorical interpretations for that story. And the way an allegory works in that context of Good Samaritan is a person was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Remember I said Jerusalem was built on a hill. Any time you left Jerusalem, you had to go down. But an allegorical preaching would say that you are going down means you're walking away from God. You were walking away from God, and then there was a robber that came, 
And the robber in this case is Satan himself. Satan shows up and he beats up on this person who was walking away from God. And then the Levite and the, uh, the priest and the Levite, they represent the Jewish establishment. They represent for us that evil people. But the Good Samaritan comes up. And the Good Samaritan here is Jesus. He cares for the wounds of the victim. He pours um, oil and, um, and wine and cares for them. And then Jesus takes this person who's beat up by Satan to the inn. And the inn in this context is the church. And Jesus gives two coins. And those two coins are the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the inn is the church. Right? And then the Good Samaritan, what does he say to the innkeeper? I will come again. I will return. Jesus will come again. Right? Do, do you see that? Like, there was a new hidden meaning that was associated with that. And sometimes when we come to these texts, these parables that we have looked at, we've kind of come to these texts um, thinking about that there's a hidden meaning there somewhere. You know, most of the time we've kind of associated the lost uh, sheep as the Gentiles, that they were lost and forgotten. And the 99 sheep that were there, we've sometimes associated them with the Jews and the Jewish establishment. And we've kind of, in doing so, we've painted Jews in a negative light in our readings of the Gospels. We've always kind of portrayed them as the bad guys. And that is true for, um, that is true for this, uh, the story of the lost coin as well. We've kind of found some of our, our own truths in it. You know, this, the story is simple. Something is lost, something is found, and we rejoice. And sometimes we've turned that story into saying that Jesus really doesn't care about the Pharisees and all the Jews that are there. He only cares about those that were lost. He doesn't care about the Jews that are there. Again, a very anti-Jewish reading of these texts. And when it comes to the prodigal son, we've heard this story before. It's a familiar story. There's a father who has two sons, the first son and the second son. The second son decides to... Um, leave his father and go away. And the first son still remains and works for the father. And the second son comes back and there's a big party. And we've sometimes in church growing up, we've kind of described the first son as a good Sunday school kid. Anybody heard that before? Right? Like the good Sunday school kid who was always there, but never really was transformed. Right? I just kind of want us to shed those interpretations today. And I want us to look at these stories in a new light. So first, I want to focus on the lost sheep. Uh, a few years ago, I was, I was teaching this uh, sermon, um, and I didn't know much about sheep. And you've got to be careful when you preach about things you don't know a lot about. And one of the things that I said was that how dumb and stupid sheep are. And I just kind of went on upon that. And I didn't realize one of my church members actually raised sheep. Oh, she had me for dinner that day. So she said, Pastor, don't ever preach that way again. So I've learned my lessons not to preach that sermon. Uh, she said, you actually, when Jesus says, like, my sheep know my voice, she actually said, the sheep actually know our voice. 
when she goes out and calls out on them, they actually come out. So anyway, so I learned a little something different. So here's the story of the parable. I hope, I hope this speaks to you this day. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and he went and comes home. He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What does a sheep do? Sheep eats, gives milk, gives clothing to those that are there. There was one biblical commentator who was interpreting this in the Greek, and he said that the wandering was that this sheep that was lost was lured away, was deceived into walking away from the pasture that was a sign for the sheep to eat. And so the sheep wanders away. And one thing that kind of strikes me as a, strikes me as crazy about this story is the shepherd, if I were a shepherd, and I'm going to tell you that story in a minute, but it was, if you lose 10, you can notice, like, that it's smaller. If you lose 25 of your sheep, you can say, oh my gosh, like a lot of my sheep are missing. Or if you lose 35, you can say, wow, like something's happening here. I need to go find them. But here, 1% is lost. 99 are saved. Just 1% is lost. And the shepherd recognizes that. He looks at his flock, 1%. Think about that. 1% is lost. And the economy of this decision does not make sense to me. It really doesn't. That you would leave 99 to go after one. The economy behind that does not make sense to me. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, uh, you all know that we raise chickens um, uh, at our house. We love them. We take good care of them. Uh, they give us eggs. Uh, in a, a couple... Um, Kristen's uh, cousin was getting married, so her brother, sister-in-law, and the kids, they all came over to our house, and uh, from time to time, we would let our chickens out in the yard so that they can walk around and stuff like that. So we let them out, um, and then um, while I was at the wedding, Samira uh, uh, sent me a text saying, Dad, I think one of the chickens is missing, um, and stuff like that, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll go, I'm going to see what I can... I didn't quite believe her. I was like, I think you didn't count them right. We had six. So anyway, I came back that night around 11 o'clock, went into the coop, opened the coop, and put my flashlight. It was, it was dark. It was late. Put my flashlight on it, and I had five chickens there. She was right. One was missing. And I had a couple of choices at that point, right? My first choice was that I could walk around in the yard and look for it. It was dark. The second option is, and I was feeling a little tired because I had officiated the wedding. The second option that kind of made sense to me was to keep the coop door open because the chickens usually walk back in once the door is open. But once I opened the door, that meant like 
a fox can come in and have the other five, right? The economy of that decision was really heavy at that point. What do I do? And I was looking up online, somebody who takes care of chickens is called a chicken tender. I'm here next week if you want to come. So anyway, so I, right, I was in, that, in that, that place, like, what do I do? I'm tired. So I did what I thought was best. I went to bed. And next morning, I had to tell Josiah, your chicken's no longer there, bud. <laughs> right? See, that is, the, that, that is where I was. See, this story, when we read this story, we need to read this story against what John 10 talks about Jesus. In John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd that is willing to seek, willing to lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. See, here the story is not about who is lost and who is found. It is not about the righteous or it is not about the sinner. But rather, friends, this is a story about the shepherd. See, the shepherd was willing to go out that night into the dark because he was willing to lay down his own life to find that sheep that was lost. The story is about the actions of the shepherd here. Friends, this morning, if you are feeling like you are isolated and you are feeling that you are somewhere all by yourself, alone, unworthy, not loved, insignificant, you name it. If you are feeling like that, I want to introduce you to this shepherd named Jesus. Because he is more than willing to lay down his life to come after you, to say that you are of value and of worth and I love you no matter what. That is the actions of the shepherd. So that is what we need to be reminded of this morning. That each one of us is loved and valued and care and the shepherd would do anything for you to show his love for you. And the second story, the second parable that was read to us this morning was the story of the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son. Two sons. The younger son. The younger son was not supposed to get a lot of inheritance when his dad died. But then he goes to his dad and says, Dad, you're better off dead than alive for me. That's essentially what he said. Your value is more for me when you're dead than when you're alive. Imagine hearing that from your son or your daughter. You're better off dead than alive. Give me my portion of my inheritance. That inheritance comes when your dad is dead. He's like, you're better off dead, dad. And he goes away and squanders away his dad's inheritance. And then he goes and does something no self-respecting Jewish man would do. He works in with the pigs. The Jews despised the pigs. They thought they were unclean animals. And this son hits bottom. He hits bottom. And in that place where he knows that he has lost his dad's inheritance, he's away from home, that's when he realizes, I'm better off home than feeding these pigs. 
and he turns around. And he actually tries to prepare a speech for him. And he starts walking, heading back home. He starts heading back home, and his father sees, and he runs after his son. And as his son is speaking and trying to give the speech that he had prepared, his father interrupts him and hugs him and kisses him, and he says, let's party. My son, I thought you were dead, but now here you are. Here you are, and he loves him. And then the older brother is really upset by how this father is acting towards his son, towards his second son. This is what we read. The older brother became angry and refused to go. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, for all these years I've been slaving for you, and you ne never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered away your property with prostitutes, comes home, you've killed a fattened calf. See, here the brother is actually making up stuff as to how his brother lived his life, how he squandered his uh, money away. That is true. He did squander the money away. But the brother adds a note there, a little footnote out of spite and anger says with prostitutes. We don't know if he did that or not. See, when I look at these both children, the older and the younger, I'm reminded that both are in a place where they need grace. They need grace. I want to read this portion based on what how the parable started. Now, when tax collectors and sinners were gathered, now, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law martyred this man, welcomed sinners to eat with them. See, Jesus is setting the table here. Jesus is setting the table much like the father was setting the table for his son when he came back home. Because his son was in need of grace. He was alone, dejected, and felt like he was far away from home. And he was coming back. And he was in need of grace. He was in need of grace. That son needed his father's grace. But I think the older son completely missed what it means to need his father's grace. Friends, this morning, the question that I would like us to wrestle with is, have we forgotten what it means to be at the table? Like the older son, are we trying to do acts of righteousness so that we can gain God's love? Have we forgotten that we are loved no matter what? The father loved both his sons. The Father that we are called to worship is abounding in love. When we come to the table, grace is dispersed. Not because we are doing all the right things. Not because we are following all the right rules. No, because grace is dispersed because who presides at that table. This morning, friends, I want to invite you. 
I want to invite you to come to this table. I know the communion cups and breads have been given to you. When we take part of that, no matter where you are, whether you're feeling like you're alone and you've hit bottom, and you're putting up your hand and saying, God, have mercy on me. I need your grace. Or if you are seeking your Father, your Heavenly Father, and trying to gain His unconditional love, I want you to come to the table. Because God loves you no matter what. God looks at you and says, You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Let's come to the table together.